Well, so this morning is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday, as it starts the Holy Week, it really recognizes the, the time in which Jesus entered into Jerusalem as the, as the triumphant king. And so we talk about Palm Sunday, really what it is is that they had palm branches, and the palm branches were a, were a sign of military victory. And as they're laying down the palm branches in, in front of Jesus as he's, he's riding in, is that they're saying things like, Hosanna, save us, oh save us. Our king is here, and now that our king is here, may our king save us. And that's just a few short days before there's another other words are cried out, which is crucify him. And I think about the whirlwind like this week will be for us as we celebrate, as we mourn, as we celebrate. Um, I think about the, the, the whirlwind. It was unparalleled to anything in human history that first that that week would have been. Oh, save us. Oh, save us. Our king is here to crucify him. How do things turn so quickly? So what we've been doing as a church that's been leading up to, to Easter is we've been looking at the prayers from the Son to the Father. There's times that Jesus goes off to pray. We're not privy to those prayers. It just says that he went off to pray, but other times we are. And as we've been looking at the, the prayers, we've been looking at these prayers that the Son that have been recorded, that they, they go to the Father. And what are the prayers being said? And the prayers that we've been looking at have come in the last week, the last three weeks, We've been looking for, we've been looking at what's called Jesus' high priestly prayer, which is the prayer that he prays right before he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is what we're going to look at this morning. And so he's been preparing his disciples. I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to depart, I'm leaving. And then he, they have the Passover meal. After they have the Passover meal, he does some teaching. And during the Passover meal, he does some teaching. And then he, they, he and the disciples depart from that. They cross the Kidron Valley, and they go into the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to start this morning. Turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 36. This is what it says. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And so he leaves the, the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem and then just goes down the little valley up onto what's called the Mount of Olives. And today it's, it's, it's all still there. There's the Temple Mount, and you can go down off the Temple Mount into the Kidron Valley, and then you can go up onto the Mount of Olives. And actually, I think it was like five or six years ago, I was actually in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And so I got to walk from, from the Mount of Olives and then make the ascent up to, to, to the Temple Mount. Now, Jesus is going the, the opposite way, uh, but on Palm Sunday, that's the way he would have gone. But as he's leaving Jerusalem, he's going to the, to the, the Mount of Olives. And they call it the Mount of Olives because there are olive trees there. And actually, you can go there today, and you'll find the place that is remembered as the Garden of Gethsemane. And guess what's the, the Garden of Gethsemane? There's olive trees there. And there's even a church called the Church of All Nations. 
And what the Church of All Nations is, as it remembers this spot traditionally, is this is where Jesus, this is where Jesus came to pray. Now, olive trees, they can last 2,000 years. Uh, these probably were not the same trees that were there when Jesus was there, although I think the, the, uh, the, the stewards there would like to, the curators maybe would like to claim so, but probably not. And interestingly enough, it is not a place to get away from the hustle and bustle. In fact, when you go to the Garden of Gethsemane and the Church of All Nations, there is a lot of hustle and bustle. And they've got this huge church, Church of All Nations, and next to the church, if you're looking at the church to the left of it, there's a very small but very prominent um, uh, 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 olive trees. So you've got maybe like, I don't know, like 12, 10, 12 olive trees that are there. And you go, this is what it would have been like. But interestingly enough, as we call it the Garden of Gethsemane, we think olive orchard, although it may be true, but Gethsemane translated actually means oil press. So this would have been quite possibly the place in which they would they would they would they would press the oil the the olives to to get the olive oil and if you've ever seen an, an olive press they they do it differently now but the way that they would have done it especially this time is that you would you would ground up your olives so you you'd ground them with a st- with two stones you'd ground them all up you'd put them into a, a sack like a burlap sack almost and then you'd place it on on a stone and then you would set a stone or maybe a couple of stones on top of it. And then they would put like a, a four by four across that and use the leverage to push down on the, on the stones. And as it pushed down, then the oil comes out. And you would have what's called the first and the second and the third pressing. And so you, you'd press it down. And that first pressing, the first, the first weight with the first pressing, that would be like your, your best oil. That would be the best olive oil. And that olive oil actually was used for ceremonial purposes, typically. That's, like, that's the best of the best. And so we're going to use this for like anointing stuff. This is going to be the best of the best. Stuff for temple use, best of the best. Then what they would do is they would add more weight onto the burlap sack. And then they would press it down again. That would be your second pressing. And then the second pressing, which you would typically get, that's like for baking and food purposes. So this is the olive oil that they would use for pretty much consumption. So one's sort of like uh, ceremonial stuff. The other one is for, for consumption. And then they would put more weight, and this would be the less pure stuff, and then they would push down even more, and then they would get their third pressing, and that would be used for just for um, and maybe like, like, uh, oil for lamps or things of that nature. So this is just sort of like... Um, just for for regular purposes. But interestingly enough, this is where Jesus goes to pray. And so what we think about is this garden. Oh, isn't that nice? You go, yes. But if you think about what it really is, is that actually olives, olive is actually the, 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 the product of Israel. And even today, it's one of their prides. I mean, I, I go to Israel and I love to eat the olives because they are tasty. And they love their olives there. Olive trees, they love their olives, they love the olive oil, everything. It's really seen as like, the, the ble- like one of the blessings of the land. And then the olive, ple- the olive press is the place where that olive oil comes out. But really it's this interesting thing where Jesus goes to pray is a place where the blessing of the land is crushed. It's the place where the blessing of the land, the, the olives, is the place in which that is crushed. And what does Jesus do? Because that's where I'm going to go to pray. I've come as a blessing to the land. And I'm, I'm, I'm about to be crushed. So I'm going to go to Gethsemane. The place of the crushing. And so this is where we find Jesus. And so what Jesus does, he goes with his disciples. He's, there's only 11 now because Judas is already gone to, to, to betray him. 
So now there's 11. And of the 11, he says to, the, to three of them, Peter, James, and John. James and John are the sons of Zebedee. Those are kind of like the inner three. He says to them, come with me a little bit further. And then he tells them, as they go a little bit further, stay here because I'm going to go even further. But I want you to, to stay awake. So you got two jobs. One, don't go anywhere. And two, stay awake. Those are your two jobs you got right now. And what it says about Jesus is that he's very troubled and sorrowful. And then Jesus even tells them, I'm very troubled and I'm very sorrowful, even to the point of death. We think about this. It's interesting because I think a lot of times when we see Jesus on the final week, or even when we think about Jesus in general, we just think about this happy-go-lucky, almost like kind of hippie-ish, long hair, goatee. Uh, I mean, wait a minute. Um, uh, so we, we think, like, that's how we picture Jesus, right? Like, hey, it's cool. But yet we see in the Old Testament, it talks about a man of sorrows. As the cross approaches, we see him, him focus. And then he says, here, I'm troubled. I'm troubled and sorrowful. I don't see Jesus as this, especially in these last moments, I don't see him as this, like, a whatever, happy. I see, again, like, I see him as very somber, very purposeful. You know, maybe at times quiet, but teaching and very direct. And yet, he says, I'm very troubled and I'm very sorrowful. Why? Because I think he knows what's about to come. And now is the hour. Have you ever been troubled by the future? Have you thought about the, the, the future and it brings you nothing but trouble and sorrow? You think about tomorrow, you go, it's just, it's just going to be trouble and sorrow. You think about a week from now, just trouble and sorrow, and you're actually troubled and sorrowful about the future. But I think a lot of times what happens in those places is that there's this uncertainty that faces us, right? We don't know what's going to happen. And so in the places of uncertainty, what do we do? We, we fill in the worst-case scenario, right? I'm going to fill in the blanks. The future has got a lot of blanks, and I'm going to fill in the worst-case scenarios. And you think about those worst-case scenarios, and you think, that's what's going to happen to me, and then that's actually what troubles you and what brings you sorrow. But then as you experience life, what you realize is that most of those things never happen. Or they were not as bad as, as you thought maybe that they were. As Mark Twain says, I've had a lot of worries in my life and most none of them have ever happened. And so we have this troubles of the future, but then it doesn't turn out that way. We go, I was okay. And maybe actually, maybe you have a friend. You, like, you share your trouble with a friend. You go, I'm really like, troubled about this. I'm really sorrowful because I don't know what's going to happen. I think this might ha- be happening or this might happen. And they may even tell you something like, you're crazy. You're overthinking it. Like, you're just, you're reading too much into that. Stop being such a downer. And they're actually, they're trying to do that to encourage you. But, what if? What if you're troubled in sorrow and God says, yeah, that's actually what's going to happen. Like, your great fear, your great trouble, the thing that troubles you and sorrows you, and God's like, yeah, yeah, actually, I got good news and bad news for you. Uh, the, I guess the good news is you didn't get it right. The bad news is it's actually worse, right? It's worse than what you can even imagine. 
And I would, I would submit to you that if, if God came to you and said, so you know what you're stressed about, which was troubling you and, sor- and bringing you sorrow right now? Yeah. Well, I'm actually telling you what you're going to face and what you're going to go through is worse than that. That I would just submit to you that your trouble and sorrow would go to a new level. Like it would find a brand new level. But interestingly enough, what we see with Jesus is that Jesus had told them just actually recently, this night. What did he tell them? Don't be troubled. And then what do we see? We see Jesus in the garden, how? Troubled. And I go, this may be one of the only places in the Bible where where we see Jesus, to. he tells us to be something that he himself is not. I mean, right, that's the whole thing. Be like Jesus, be like Jesus, be like Jesus. Except for in this place, Jesus is like, yeah, don't, don't be like me. You don't be troubled. But then he says that I'm troubled. Well, why would he do that? Why would he tell us to be something that even he himself is not? Well, I'll tell you why. He was troubled so that you wouldn't have to be troubled, Right? The whole idea of the trouble was not that there is not trouble, that somebody shouldn't be troubled. The whole idea of the trouble is that he was troubled so that you will not be troubled. That's why he's saying that. You don't be troubled. Why? Because I'm going to be troubled. And if, if I'm troubled and you're troubled, like we got, then we got double trouble, and that's no good. Like Nobody wants double trouble, right? Nobody wants double trouble. And so really, it's not because of trouble, like somebody shouldn't be troubled, but actually the, the beautiful thing, and this is about the gospel, is that, that he was troubled on our behalf so that he can say, don't be troubled. And this is what he says, and yet in the end we see this. So he tells them, you got two jobs, you got two jobs. I want you to stay here, don't go anywhere, and stay awake. I'm going to go pray and be, trou- and be troubled. Then we see the prayer in verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Let me read that again. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so I want you to notice Jesus' posture of prayer because that says something. Notice what the Bible doesn't say. And then Jesus went a little bit further. He quietly knelt down before the Father. He clasped his hands. He bowed his head in honor and respect, closed his eyes, and then offered up a prayer. Not that that wouldn't be appropriate. I think that's appropriate. But that's not what it says. What does it say? It says that he fell on his face, took a, took a position of, of submission, took a position of desperation. I'll tell you this. Your posture in prayer, it says something. And I'll tell you this about your posture in prayer is that from what I know of just what Jesus, we see here with Jesus, what I know from my own experience is the, 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 more, the more desperate my prayer, the more my body is engaged. And here what we see is whole body is engaged in this prayer, falling on his faith in both, I think, in, in, in submission 
you know, I think, uh, yeah, submission and desperation. You ever prayed on your face? You ever laid out before God? Yeah, it, because it's saying something, isn't it? It's saying like, I am, I'm emotionally, I am spiritually, and I am physically on the floor. Like, I, it's just like that's, how I, that's how I feel. Physically, I, it's, it's, a, it's a physical reality, it's a spiritual reality, and it, it, it is an emotional reality. God, would you, would you lift me up? And I'll tell you this, these kinds of prayers, prayers on the floor, face down, these are not the kind of prayers of like, God, would you just help me have a good day today? You know, watch the kids while they're at school and be over them. You know, and thank you for this day, my daily bread. Those aren't those prayers, right? If you've ever prayed this way, you know what those prayers are. Those are prayers of desperation. God, I can do nothing else. And yet here we see Jesus. And what's the prayer? And by the way, probably the most famous, most powerful prayer to ever be prayed. If it possible, if possible, let this cup pass. And so the big question then is, what's the cup? Uh, there's not a physical cup there as far as we know in front of Jesus, but what's the cup that he's referring to? What's the cup? Well, the cup that he's referring to is the cup of God's wrath. Because we know that the cross is that it's God's wrath poured out onto Jesus. His wrath and his judgment. But the cup is the wrath of God. Now, nobody wants to drink the cup of wrath, right? Nobody wants to drink that. And this is why Jesus is asking, like, if, if it's possible, would you let this cup? Because to talk about the wrath of God is not a popular thing. I mean, I don't have people coming to me saying, Josh, it's really, it's been a really hard week this week, and I just, man, I wonder where God is in all of this. And could you just speak to me a little bit more about the wrath of God? You know, could you, could you tell me about his judgment more? Because I'm feeling really down, and so could you encourage me? Nobody wants to talk about that. The wrath. You know, what, you know what wrath is, by the way? Wrath, all wrath is, is wrath is amplified anger. I think the problem happens with us is that we, we, when we hear wrath, we think, we think wrath and rage. But what's rage? Rage is uncontrolled anger, right? Wrath is amplified anger. Rage is uncontrolled anger. And so when we hear wrath, I think a lot of times we hear the wrath of God. you know what we actually hear? I think we hear the rage of God. He is so mad. He is so angry that he's just, he's just shooting stuff down. You know, he's so mad. He's like, and locusts for you and lightning for you. Right? He's just like haphazardly. But that's not what it is. There is a difference between wrath and rage. The problem is there may not be a difference between, for you, like in your own personal life, there may not be a difference between wrath and rage. That as wrath comes out, rage comes out. But just because there's not a distinction for you doesn't mean that there's not a distinction for God. And I think there is a distinction for God. I want to serve a God who is, it's going to sound really weird, I know, but I want to serve a God who's wrathful. I want to serve a God whose anger is amplified. It allows me to trust him. I don't want to serve a God that would look at the world, look at the world and looked at, look at all of the sin in the world, all of the brokenness in the world, and was just emotionally disconnected. I want, to, I, want to, I want to serve a God and trust a God who looks at the world, whose anger is amplified because he sees the brokenness. It, it invokes something in him. By the way, if he was a rageful God, he could not be trusted. 
But because he's a wrathful God, absolutely he's trusted. And here's the thing. The greater the sin, the more amplified the anger is. Am I right? I mean, this is true for you. I mean, it's not just, we're not like, oh, this is only true of God. No, this is true for you. This is true of me. This is true of God. That the greater the sin, the greater the, the, the anger is amplified. Am I right? I mean, think about something. If somebody came to you and they lied to you about you, they said, oh, you, you said this. You're like, I didn't say that. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. I heard you. No, you, there's no way you heard me say that because I didn't say that. And then you did this. I didn't do that. And there might even be like this frustration as the more you're adamant with them that you didn't say that, the more adamant they are that you did say that. And there would be some anger that would rise up in you. But what if you left that, like that, that gathering, that meeting with that person, and then one of your coworkers came up and said, hey, so-and-so, that, that same person, they told me that uh, you said and did this. Like, I did not say and do that. I know they, they said that to me, but it's not true. Like, well, that's what they told every, They told me that, and they told everybody else that. Your, what would happen with your anger? Boop, boop, amplified. Why? Because the sin is greater than you first knew. And then what if you went home, and your mom or your spouse was like, hey, what happened at work? Like, this person from your office called and said you did this. Like, no, I did not do it. Like, the, the more the sin would spread, right, what would happen with your anger? Your anger w- would be amplified. And so you have this sense of, of, of right and wrong, and when you have been wronged, anger kicks in, and the more egregious the wrong is, the greater your anger is. And a lot of times, rightfully so. But what if you're a God? Who's God, who is his, his, his understanding of righteousness is infinitely superior to our understanding of righteousness. And his knowledge of, of the spread of sin is infinitely greater than ours. So we're like, this is right, and this is how I've been wrong. And, and, and as, as, as it goes like this, my sin is amplified. But what if you're a God who is infinite in righteousness and infinite in knowledge of sin? You go, you'd better believe that that would be a God with amplified anger. Now the question is, what does God do with this amplified anger? How is it satisfied? And I go, well, it's the way it's satisfied in most places like this. Is that some sort of justice carries out. So God, God's anger is satisfied with justice, which is actually true of, of you, true of our world. Do you know that, that what lies behind most activism is actually this idea? Well, I, you know, any sort of activism, whether, whether you deem it uh, illegitimate or legitimate. And by the way, that's like how all activism is right now. We're like, well, th- yes, that activism is okay, this one not. Why? Because, well, because I think this one's legitimate and that one's illegitimate. But you know how all activism works? Is that somebody has this sense of right and wrong, whether it be a group or a person. Something is violating that sense of right and wrong. So in other words, a sin is happening. And the greater the sin, the greater the anger. And then the, 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 this is how activism works is they go, and what are they demanding? We're demanding justice. And we won't stop. We won't be settled. We won't be satisfied until justice comes. And so we see this. 
But what happens with the activists if justice is skirted? Does the anger go away? No, right? Just look at the news, right? That the anger doesn't go away. If and when justice is skirted, what happens? Boom! Anger, what? Amplified even more. And so what, what, what God does with Jesus on the cross is he, he, he takes the wrath. It's his wrath. It's his judgment. It's his justice all brought together. And so he says, I want this cup, the cup of wrath, to pass. Of course. Of course. Who wouldn't, right? I mean, you don't need to believe in God to know that you don't want the wrath of God. Right? I mean, I could talk to an atheist. And be like, you want the wrath of God? I'm like, well, I don't believe in God. Well, okay, but if he existed, would you want the wrath of God? Like, oh, no. Like, no, nobody wants the wrath of God. Everybody would say, yes, let it pass. Never ask anybody, like, I would like more of that. No, nobody wants that. And this is what Jesus' prayer is. I don't want the wrath. You don't want the wrath. He doesn't want the wrath. Nobody wants the wrath. So he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass, like, from me. But what's the problem? The problem is, is that Jesus came to drink the cup. Like, that's his purpose. That's his, like, it's his divine purpose. That's why he was sent. He was sent to drink the cup. And so in the moment where the drinking of the cup of God's wrath is becoming increasingly real to him, he's got this problem. I would like it for it to pass. I want to drink it. But this is why I'm here. This is my divine purpose. And so what does he do? He, he prays this, this bold and submissive prayer. God, would you let it pass? By the way, that's a bold prayer. God says, the Father says, I've sent you for this purpose. Would you, would you change maybe? I mean, not change, but, like, but would you let it pass? Is there another way? Is there something else? That's a bold request. But his bold prayer is also met with a submissive prayer. But if not, like, you, like your will, let, you, let, you, let your will prevail. And I thought about like most of our prayer life. Right, I think we got the bold part down. We got big asks, big asks of God. But we don't have the submissive prayer down. And interestingly enough, I think a lot of times when we make big asks of God, it's like we got a bold ask, and instead of like submission, we go into like bargaining. Like, God, I got a big ask. I got a big like request of you. And if you say yes, let me tell you what I will do for you. I'll go to church. Six months, won't miss a Sunday. I will read my Bible every day for 30 minutes. And I will tell 10 people about you. Like God's up in heaven like, oh, that's a pretty good deal. And that's a pretty... <laughs> What's the guy going to do? Counter with that? Okay, so I... I see your six months to church every Sunday, but I want to raise you with 45 minutes of Bible reading and telling 15 people about me. And if you say yes to that, we got a deal. Jesus, bold and submissive. Bold, will you let it pass? Submissive in the sense with not as I will, but as you will. 
verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus prays this prayer. He leaves. So he prays this prayer. So he stops praying and then he comes back. And what was the the thing? Stay here and stay awake. Those are your two jobs. You had two jobs. He comes back from doing his prayer and where are they? They're asleep. And what he says to Peter, it's interesting, he picks up Peter. Peter, what, like, not even an hour? You can't even give me that? Interestingly enough, if you actually go back to the story that happens right before this story, the verses that lead into this, this still in chapter 26, the verses that lead right into this story, Jesus tells the disciples about what's going to happen. Do you know what he says? He says, they're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to scatter. He's the shepherd, they're the sheep. They're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to scatter. You know what Peter says to him? I'm going to paraphrase now, but these guys, possibly. Thomas, most definitely. (laughs) Me? No. No, Jesus, no. I mean, I get like these other guys. I get why you'd have those concerns with these guys. But me, I'm solid. Even if I have to die with you, I wouldn't leave you. And Jesus, just the response is, right, okay, that's cute. But you're going to deny me three times. And then what do we see here, the next story? What does he do call it? Peter? Peter. <laughs> hey, mister, I'll die with you. Um, you can't even stay awake for an hour? You can't stay awake with me for an hour? You think you can bear the burden of the cross? You can't even bear the burden of preparing for the cross. And it's clear in this moment that Jesus is much more burdened and troubled than the disciples. Have you ever had a burden that's kept you up at night? Maybe you're here this morning tired because a burden kept you up last night. And that can be frustrating, especially as you're you're like you're you're just you're watching the clock go by like, okay, if I fall asleep now in this moment, in this moment, right now, if I fall asleep down in this moment, I'll get four hours of sleep. And then an hour later, like, okay, now if I fall asleep now in this moment, I could at least get three hours of sleep. And that burden will keep you up and that'll be frustrating. You know, it's more frustrating than that. If you've got a spouse who's sound asleep. It's like, what? Not keeping them up. This burden is, we are not, we are not this. You know, we're not, we're not here. We are definitely here. And you think to yourself, why isn't the burden keeping you up? There may be lots of reasons for that, but what we do know is that the burden's different, right? The burden is keeping you up, but the same thing is, allowing them to sleep, but they're able to sleep. And so they're asleep. And he says this weird thing, this interesting thing where he says, now's not the time to sleep. You got to watch. And now what does he say? Watch and pray. Before is just stay. 
Stay and watch. Now he's saying watch and pray. Watch and pray what? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Stay awake and pray. This idea of temptation, we think, oh, temptation to sin. I go, yes, but it's actually it's a bigger picture than that. The idea here is testing. Pray. You're about to enter into a testing. Pray. Now is not, you're going to a testing. Now is not the time to sleep. Now is the time to pray. And what do you pray? Well, sometimes you just pray that the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. I think what Jesus is saying here, and I think what he's saying to, to, to confront what happened with Peter earlier, Peter doesn't, de- he doesn't desire to, to deny Jesus. He doesn't want to deny Jesus. What does he want to do? He wants to live an honor and, and, an honor and faithful life to Jesus. And so that's why he says that this, the spirit is willing, but what's the problem is, Peter, your flesh is weak. So your spirit is willing, I will go to die with you. But when the moment of death presents itself, what do you say? I, I, I don't know that guy. Why? Because your spirit is willing. You want to. You want to be faithful. But what's the problem? Your flesh is weak. And so Jesus is saying in this moment, what do you do in those places? You, you, you pray. And sometimes it's just a confession that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so what happens in these moments when the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak is that what happens is we take and we allow comfort to trump conviction. Conviction, my spirit is willing. Comfort, but my flesh is weak. I would say probably most of the things that are plaguing you right now are places where your spirit is willing but your flesh is weak. And when the moment of testing comes, this is what he's saying, when the moment of testing comes, you pick comfort over your convictions. And so he says, the moment of testing is upon you. What do you do? Well, you pray. Now is not the time to sleep. And what you pray, you pray, is that your convictions would trump your comfort that the spirit is willing and the flesh is strong. And part of it is just a, con- is a confession. Like, can I be honest? Like, there's been prayers of my life, continual prayers of my life where I go, my spirit is willing. Jesus, I want to honor you with everything that I am. The problem is, is that my flesh is weak and I need you to strengthen me. That's what this is a prayer for. Would you strengthen the flesh? The spirit's not the problem. The flesh is the problem. and I need you to strengthen the flesh. Interestingly enough, this is Jesus' next prayer. So he goes back to pray. Verse 42. Again, for the second time he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Now here, two things are happening. One, is this idea that we get the answer to the first prayer, which is no. Because the first question is, if it's possible, let it pass. Then the second prayer is, if I have to drink it, which is the, that means that the, the answer to the first prayer was no, your will be done. Now, interesting with, with, with this prayer is that, like, the way that this is usually done is that we have a bold ask, 
and then we wrap it up with the but your will be done as like this like this this like uh, get God out of a jam clause right and so it's like I'm gonna make these bold asks and at the end of it I'm gonna I'm gonna tack on this but your will be done as this in sense of like what you're what's really happening a lot of times when this is used is what we're using it for is this idea that there's this future so we've got this big prayer right now but I'm anticipating a future unanswered prayer that's going to end in disappointment so I'm anticipating that and as I anticipate that, then I'm going to circumvent that by tacking on this whole, your will be done. So that when it comes to the unanswered disappointment, we go, well, but it was, it was the will of God. And so we might pray for like a healing and a healing or, you know, someone's dying. We, God, we pray that you would deliver them, but, but your will be done. Because is that what Jesus is praying here? Like he's trying to get God out of a jam later on when the disciples are disappointed when he's up on the cross? No. What's he praying here? I think he's praying for the divine strength. The divine power. Your will be done. And when I say your will be done, this is not just a prayer of like, well, you know, whatever happens, happens. This is a prayer of like, your will is for me to drink the cup. And so I, like your will has to be done, which means I have to drink the cup, which means I need you to strengthen me to do that. Interesting, in Luke's account, we actually see the angel comes and strengthens him. And so this place of he has this divine purpose that has messed its testing. And what does he ask for? He asks for the divine power. And then it all wraps up in this place he goes back out. So leaving them again, sorry, verse 43, and again he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time saying the same words again. And so he goes out back to see the disciples and what are they? Back asleep. And I love how we hear the the, the narration of like, well, but their eyes were heavy. You know, their eyes were heavy. They were tired, as we'll find out in Passover. There was four cups of wine. That's a lot of wine. And now they're out praying. Their eyes were heavy. Jesus doesn't say anything this time. He just goes back, and what does he do? He prays a third time. What does he pray? Same words. Can I tell you, like, the most desperate prayers in my life, two things are happening. One, I, I, I do them, I, I pray a lot more. I don't know about you, but the desperate places of your life. Like nobody has to tell you to pray. Like you're just prayers are just they're just like verbally vomiting onto God. But the other thing that happens in my most desperate place of my life is that my prayer becomes the same prayer over and over again. Boom, prayer. I don't. It's, it's weird. I don't get tired of praying it. I petition it. I request it. And this is what we see Jesus do. And then. He goes back out after the third time. Then he came to them, to the disciples, and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of the sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. In other words, the time is here. The time is among us. And so what we see with Jesus is that when his divine purpose This is the prayer, what's happening in the garden. When his divine purpose meets testing, comfort, or conviction, what does he do? He asks for divine power. 
He can't achieve the divine purpose unless there's the divine power. And so the divine purpose is tested. And when it's tested, he prays for divine power. It's interesting. I talk to a lot of people now. And one of the things I hear a lot about right now is like, I want purpose. I want purpose. And I want to have the, the, the tools in my hands to accomplish all of the things that I want to do in this life. I want purpose and the ability to carry those things out. To which I go, oh, that sounds a lot like Jesus in the garden. Purpose and power. I want the purpose of life and I want the ability to do those things. But they're doing their own things. But here's the beautiful thing is that God has both a divine purpose for you and wants to give you a divine power. You're like, oh, that's why I came here. And I will tell you what your divine purpose really is. Like, ah, yes. What is it? Is it feeding the orphans? Is it, is it <laughs> you know, starting Bible studies? And is it, what's my divine purpose? Well, the Bible is very clear about what your divine purpose is that you would know that the Father sent the Son and that you, would, that, that, that you would let Jesus bear the wrath of God on your behalf and be in relationship with him. And then you would be conformed into his image. And other things will flow out of that. Bible studies will flow out of that. Feeding the orphans flow out of that. Everything will flow out of that. But the Bible is very clear. Your divine purpose it's not even that you're a good human being. Your divine purpose is to be in the relationship with your creator. And so in these places where that's tested, what, is, what does Jesus talk about here? You pray for conviction over comfort. I want that. I want to be a child of God. I want to belong to God. I want to live a life honoring to him. Those are my, that's my spirit's willing but there are places in which the flesh are weak. And he says, be in prayer. And what are you in prayer for? The divine power. For you cannot achieve your divine purpose without the divine power. And I find people trying to achieve their own purposes with divine power, what happens? Breaks down. And I find people trying to achieve the divine purpose by their own power. What happens there? It breaks down. What are we given? We are given the divine purpose that is met with the divine power. Both given to us through Jesus drinking the wrath. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your power. God, I pray for all the places right now where my brothers and sisters, where just as I was talking about the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I know that there are places identified. I pray that there would be a, a prayer of this week, a prayer of submission, a prayer of strengthening, a prayer of confession, but that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Would you, would you strengthen the flesh? May we live out our divine purpose, but may we not do it by our own power. May we do it by your power. May you enable us, empower us to live out our purpose.
all in and through you, Jesus. We thank you. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.